Here at the History Emporium and Pals, we believe in equality. It is against the law to discriminate against someone because of age, disability, gender reassignment, marriage and civil partnership, pregnancy and maternity, race, religion or belief, sex or sexual orientation. The shocking murder of Sarah Everard has highlighted an injustice that we know is faced by many women across the world. Still paid less and often not valued in our society or dismissed by an out-of-touch government and systems that we have in place in Britain. You can get longer in prison for defacing a statue than you can if you assault a woman. At the History Emporium, we stand in solidarity of those who gathered at the vigil in South London in memory of Sarah. We also support the right to protest. Most of all, we send our love to the family and friends of Sarah. She was just walking home. The History Emporium and Pals podcast in association with the History Corner dot org podcasts articles reviews greetings one must not get one's knickers in a twist Hello and welcome to the History Emporium and Powers podcast. I'm joined today by Rosie and Chris. I really wanted to sing Rosie and Jim here. Today we celebrate belated International Women's Day that was on Monday the 8th of March and the relaunch of the Historian's Magazine that was founded by Rosie. The Historian's Magazine is available online and to tell us more about the magazine and some inspirational women, Rosie, hello and thank you for coming on. Hey. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. happy to be here. Good. I'm excited to, to, to have you on here. I've been following your progress on, on Instagram and, and, and catching... I actually had a flick through uh, the, the magazine that's out at the moment. And um, yeah, I, that would definitely rival some of the, um, the publications that are in the mainstream. So yeah, good job. Oh, thank you. I mean, I just wanted something to do over lockdown so I wouldn't forget how to use InDesign. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've done a very good job and it's very well designed as well. So, yeah, I've, um, I've read a couple of articles on there, but it's, um, it's quite a hefty um, magazine for a, a so-called amateur magazine. So I'm impressed. Yeah, we got a lot more articles than I thought for the first edition. There was probably about like 50 maybe people interested and like narrowing it all down and everything was quite difficult. That's great. That's amazing. Now, before we go any further, I've got a really important question to ask you. <laughs> yep. What is your favourite brand of tea? Oh, I, I know what I should answer for this. Um, <laughs> I'm going to say Yorkshire tea. Well, that, That's the right okay. answer. Yeah, Chris is thrilled, I'm sure, by that answer. Absolutely thrilled. See, I like Yorkshire tea, but this is this has sort of turned into a whole big sort of palaver in the history Instagram community. Like everyone's, I've got people sending me tea bags from everywhere, which is mental. Um, but the water where I live is absolutely terrible, so I think that has something to do with it. Yeah, I can relate to that. Like, there's no way that is. Yeah, you're a fellow southerner, aren't you? You're even a, even more south than me. So, um, yeah, it's not great where I am at all. Very chalky. 
Yeah, I mean, like, it's just when you pour a cup of tea and then you see, like, the lime scale on the yes. kettle, you're like, it's oh. gross, isn't it? It's gross. Yeah. It, it doesn't matter. How... Yeah, enjoy your Yorkshire yeah. answer, Chris. Um, I've not formally introduced you yet, Chris, so... Um, it's, it's okay. It's we okay. are also <laughs> joined by Chris Riley, who is the features coordinator and writer for the Historians magazine and is a regular guest on this podcast. Hello, Christopher. Hello, how are you doing? I'm good. I think that's the first time I've ever called you Christopher. It's fine. Um, I mean, I think we're on that level now. Mm, yes. Intimate. Intimate community we've got going on. Um, now, to kick off, um, I kind of wanted to share with you guys five uh, women who I admire from history and uh, kind of a couple of facts about them. And then the floor is yours to talk about some inspirational women and... Um, talk about the the magazine um which i'm really excited to read when it comes out um so my first inspirational woman is a lady called uh, emma gonzalez so she's a gun control activist and she was a survivor of a mass shooting in america in florida at, um uh, a high school in parkland um, so since the, the shooting, Emma's basically been um, a force to be reckoned with and trying to get gun control um, laws in place. Um, and she's a massive activist in that sort of area. So, she, so she's, she's, a, she's a modern day um, lady that I look up to. She, she's great. So you should definitely go, go check her out um, if you can. Um, the... So these are in no particular order, by the way. I'm not ranking them from top to worst. They're all amazing people. So um, uh, a lady called Gloria Steinman, who a lot of people probably would have heard of. Um, she was a journalist and a political activist as well. Um, she was really inspirational in the 60s and 70s in the feminist movement. Um, and she's, she's still alive today. So she was born in 1934 and she's still campaigning, which is amazing. Um, this third person we all would have heard of, uh, Anne Frank, who was um, famously wrote her diary when she was in hiding in Amsterdam. And um, so I, I, I came quite late to Anne Frank's book and I thought it was going to be really serious and sincere. And she, the lady had sass. Like she's, she was proper funny. Like some of the the lines that she wrote about her her mum and her dad and stuff are like proper teenage things to say. Like I really liked it. It really shone through like her um, personality. And she would, I, I have no doubt that she would have gone on to being an amazing writer had what happened to her not happened. Um, so fourth um, is. Uh, Maya Angelou, so a lot of people have heard of her. So she's a poet, singer, and civil rights activist. She had um, a lot of dealings with um, Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. Um, so she's obviously another amazing woman. And last but not least is a um, young school girl called Hazel Hill. So she, so before the Battle of Britain, um, the school girl helped design. Um, the Spitfire. So she wasn't credited with it at all. So she was a mathematician who helped her dad do all the calculations to get 
um, eight guns on the the wings of the the plane rather than four. Um, the 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 men in charge were like, no, we definitely can't do it because of aerodynamics and stuff. But she came up with this calculation um, that that um, got eight guns on the on the uh, uh, on the on the plane rather than the rather than four, and they reckon that's what won the Battle of Britain. So she is an amazing lady as well. Um, yeah, so they're my five. I mean, obviously there's loads more, but it, and it's really hard to pick. But I kind of tried to get a bit of a selection there um, from modern day to history. So they're my five. Now. Anybody that knows me, it would it would be weird if I didn't bring up my absolute favourite person in the world. I wonder who it could be. <laughs> uh, Eleanor of Aquitaine, surprisingly. No, <laughs> no way. Um, she is a, a wonderful person from history that I think everybody should do a little bit of reading on. Um, she's one of the reasons why I'm into medieval England. Um, I was reading a book about... Um, like the 12th century or whatever by, uh, probably by Dan Jones. Um, and she just kind of stuck out for me as somebody that's um, uh, super important and, and deserves some, you know, a bit of credit. Um, mm. sh she lived a, an incredibly interesting life. Um, but <laughs> the thing is, we don't even know when she was born. That's, that's one of the things about Eleanor is we, we don't know. She was born somewhere between 1122 and 1124. Um it's only a two-year window, though. That's not too bad. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I guess. I guess it's not terrible looking back, but we should uh, we should probably do better. Mm. So we we um, mentioned this before, Rosie. That actually, when researching women in history, it's actually really hard to find dates of their birth because they're normally recorded via the men that they were surrounded by, which is terrible. Um, I don't know if you've come across that, Rosie, when you've been researching stuff. But, um, yeah, we, it's just something that we've clocked. Yeah, I mean, I'm more into the uh, moderner side of history. But yeah. even then, like, I'm doing my dissertation on, like, female criminals in London and, like, just trying to trace them even in the 20th century is impossible. That sounds amazing. Like, I'm, well, I'm really into that. I'm into history and I'm into the macabre, so you have got me. Tick. <laughs> um, sorry, Chris, interrupted you there. No, it's fine. It's fine. Um, yeah, so Eleanor, uh, we don't know much about her childhood and her, her early, early life, but um, she was kind of put in this position, or born into this position of strange power for a woman in the 12th century. Um, she was the eldest child of the um, Count of Aquitaine, um, sorry, the Duke of Aquitaine, who had no sons, and therefore Eleanor became the Duchess of Aquitaine in her own right when her father died. Um, that made her the most sought-after bride, probably in the known world, you know, certainly in Europe, extending to you know Constantinople, because the the amount of land that she would just gift a husband was insane. It was pretty much from um, Brittany all the way down to like Toulouse um, and sort of like the Pyrenees Mountains. So it was an insane piece of real estate. Um, and she was quickly like snaffled up by um, by the King of France. Um, no, no, no guessing for what he was called. Um, he was one of the many Louis. He was Louis the Seventh. Um, <laughs> 
unlike Eleanor, a completely unremarkable man who was destined for the church. Um, and Eleanor made that point pretty clear, um, saying that she'd married a priest, not a king. Um, they were unable to conceive a son, which anybody that knows anything about medieval history is like the number one thing to get squared off straight away. Um, they had daughters, which were obviously no good. You know, waste of a pregnancy, if you ask, if you ask those guys. Mm. Um, and, but Eleanor wasn't kind of sitting on her laurels. She w- joined Louis on crusade. She went on the second crusade. Um, which was an absolute failure on its own, but she took um, a leading role in the crusade. So she was quite active in in the planning and the uh, and the movement of troops and things like that in the Holy Land um, with her um, strangely named uncle uh, Raymond the Fair or Raymond the Handsome. Raymond, um, I'm going to tell my dad that he's called Raymond. Oh really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. She had a apparently she had a rather fit uncle who she may or may not have had an affair with. I don't believe she did because Eleanor can do no wrong in my eyes. But also, <laughs> I just don't believe that she did. Um, the sources tend to be pro Louis and therefore anti uh, Eleanor. But hey ho, mm, is that so sort of point, a bit of satire going on there? I think I think it's kind of like. Because, uh, spoiler alert, she isn't married to Henry for... Um, oh, spoil it. She isn't married to Louis for long. Bloody does she spoiler. marry Henry? Anyway, she does, one of the many <laughs> Um Yeah, so she, yeah, spoiler alert, she's not managed, uh, married to Louis for, forever. After the crusade, she eventually finally gets the Pope to um, annul her marriage to Louis uh, based on um, consanguinity, which is one of the hardest words to say. Um, they were too closely related, um, even though everybody was too closely related. Mm. Uh, and then ironically married um, a man who she was more closer related to, um, the future Henry II of England, who was known as Henry Fitz Empress, um, who is the son of, again, another woman that I could have mentioned, which is the Empress Matilda, another uh, favourite of mine, another powerhouse of, of, of the uh, high, middle, uh, high Middle Ages. Um, but yeah, after that, she... She helps Henry become king of England because at this point we're still dealing with um, the Stephen and Matilda anarchy um, and things like that. Um, but she um, she quickly establishes herself as you know one of the most important figures in Anglo-Norman politics, finance, things like that. Um, she was um, she really was the top dog um, when Henry wasn't about. Uh, unfortunately, they kind of fell out. Um, and they spent a lot of their marriage unhappy. Um, Eleanor was pretty much under house arrest for quite a long time. Um, but towards the end of Henry II's life and into um, he, yeah into his kind of twilight years, her, his literally the worst kids in the world. You've got Richard the Lionheart, future anyway. You've got the future King John who everyone knows is the worst. Um, you've got others. You've got Geoffrey. Uh, you've got another kid called Henry who's pronounced king. It's all really messy. Everybody hates each other. Geoffrey's uh, teaming up with, with Richard, and they're like, I don't like you, Dad. You're a, you're, you're a word I can't say on a podcast. Um, <laughs> and Eleanor's kind of you trying to say keep what you like on this podcast. You know, we just dick. put the explicit <laughs> logo on it. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, she she does a lot of um, kind of 
you know, keeping her kids from literally killing their father and vice versa. And Henry dies and then Richard's king. And while he's off in the Holy Land, his brother, John, the worst man in the world, is like, he's trying to, he's trying to usurp the throne from his brother. And Ellen is just trying to do her absolute best to keep everything away from John. She's trying to keep him in Ireland and keep him away from the throne. So, you know, she, she can rule while Richard's away. Um, and then Richard gets captured on the way back from the Third Crusade. Um, he's held, prison, held prisoner in like Germany, uh, places like that. And it's Eleanor who is the one that um, collects the money. Um, it's where we get the term King's, uh, King's Ransom from. And the fee is insane. Um, it's, it's not like something that you can quantify now because obviously exchange rates are so strange. Um, but um, yeah, she, she did remarkable things with the situation that she was given. A husband that didn't really love her or care for her or even probably like her. Um, she managed to carve out a, a position for herself. She managed to deal with her warring sons who then became kings one after another. Obviously, we all know the story of how bad John was. Uh, she was at the very, very start of her reign. Bear in mind, she's in her like 60s and 70s at this point because we're now into the early 13th century. She's she's still kicking. She's still doing the best she can to um, you know keep the keep the the Angevin Empire, which it was later known as. So all the way from through uh, Aquitaine into Maine, Anjou. Normandy, obviously England, Scotland a little bit, Ireland, all of that. She's trying to keep it all together. Um, even up to the age of 77, she was traveling through France, um, trying uh, on her way to Castile um, to kind of uh, broker a peace, uh, an alliance to stop her absolutely inept son, John, from completely losing everything, which she pretty much did anyway. Um, and... You know, she she really did like fight till the end. Um, she, she, like I said, she really survived well into her seventies. Uh, she died in twelve oh four, which is an insane amount of time um, to be alive at that in that period mm. of history. But um, yeah, she was really sick she, of all them boys yeah. and men fighting around her constantly, um, banging their heads together. She, yeah, she had a wonderful relationship with her daughters. Um, which is which is quite a shame because for a lot of her life she wasn't allowed to see them after she um, kind of uh, was divorced from from Louis or annulled, um, which is which is a shame. But eventually she she got a relationship with them. But she, for me anyway, um, I would argue that she is the kind of not the first, but certainly the one of the kind of trailblazers for what it was to be a queen um, mm -hmm. in in medieval Europe. She set out this. Sour stall, you know, this is what we do as queens. Um, we have this power, this power. We are important. We're not just baby farms that, you know, push out sons. Um, and she, she set the mould for later queens of England and of France and of probably of Europe. And, uh, yeah, I got a lot of time for her, obviously. Mm. She sounds like a badass. Yeah. Yeah, but big she, fan. She needs to be with all them crazy men running around her. Mm-hmm. Jesus, no, that's really interesting. I mean, we've covered um, Eleanor before, haven't we, on a different show um, where you can kind of find a bit more in depth about sort of her life and, and, and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, she's, she sounds like a really interesting um, woman. 
So thank mm. you. Thank Big you. time. Thanks for bringing that to the table, Christopher. Anytime. Um, I don't know why I've started calling you Christopher. It's just it, it's fine, honestly. It's a thing now. It's a thing. But I only get called Chris at work or on Instagram because that's what my username is. Like most family and, and close friends call me Christopher. So, mm. you know, it's cool. I like it. There we go. So, so Rosie, you need to change that on the Historians magazine now. Christopher, <laughs> Christopher Riley. Um, it's my formal name. <laughs> yeah, people call me Oliver. Like, and I'm just like, who's that? I was like, oh, it's me. Um, yeah, bizarre, bizarre. That's really interesting. I don't know if you've got anything um, you want to ask Chris, Rosie, about Eleanor. I mean, I don't really know much about her, to be honest. Um, so just learning that little bit mm. is pretty interesting to me because I'm not really a medieval historian. No, so. no, I'm I'm with you on that. So 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 I've learned loads from Chris being on the podcast because sort of pre Tudor, I'm useless. Um, so yeah, actually learning stuff about um, our history before that has been really interesting. But. Um, yeah, I'm kind of in that modern day camp with you, Rosie, I think. Right. So I'm probably going to pronounce her name completely wrong. Um, but Noor in Inayat Khan. Um, so she was a uh, part of the special operations um, in World War II. Um, so she was a special operations executive. Um, and she was the first female wireless operator sent from the UK into uh, Nazi-occupied France to aid the French resistance. Oh, amazing. Um, so she went there under the code name Madeleine. Um, and um, obviously, you know, it's a pretty big thing for, to be the first female mm. wireless operator. She was also um, Muslim as well. Um, her father was related to the emperors of the, like, Mogar... Mo- Mughal Empire in India, um, so she was almost wow. kind of like a princess relation, um, and yeah, they sent her into uh, Nazi-occupied France. I mean, it didn't end too well for her, um, as she was betrayed and captured um, and executed in a concentration camp. Oh, no way. Um, but she was the first Muslim woman to be awarded the George's Cross, um, which was which is the highest civilian mm. uh, award in the UK, um, and I think that there was a statue unveiled of her as well recently, um, somewhere in London. Um, and yeah, it's just um, she was quite young. I think she was about thirty when she died, um, and she was selected because she was so good on the wireless. She was just incredible. Um, it's so Which sad is why she was singled out. Know about these people? We're only finding out mm. about it now, seventy, almost eighty years later. Um, yeah, it's just it's just poor, isn't it? It's it's poor that we've we've kind of edited that narrative. Um, but yeah, she sounds like an amazing person, and I'm definitely going to go hunt that statue down. Um, yeah, when, when we're allowed. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I only found out about her because I watched a film that was on Netflix called A Call to Spy. Um, And it's about like, (laughs) it's about like three women or two women who were part of this like 
special operations team um and like basically i'd never heard of any of them and i just thought it was really interesting that we never hear about any when we do honor women who from world war ii or whatever you never hear about anyone of a different color or different faith and i thought she was pretty interesting mm. because i haven't really heard of any muslim even Muslim men being involved mm. with the war effort. So I thought and, it was pretty interesting. Yeah, and absolutely. And they they were. You've got to think that we're still under, at this point, there's still some colonies. Not that I agree with colonies, but there are still colonies around. And um, there's a lot of people from different nations that were fighting on the side of the British in World War Two, But we never hear any of that, um, which is... Poor, really poor, I think, and needs to be addressed. So hopefully, with this podcast, at least we'll we'll try and put some some right to those wrongs if we can. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No, really interesting. That's really interesting. Chris, yeah. You got anything to ask, Rosie? Yeah. I mean, I was just going to build on on briefly what you were saying about people of different kind of faiths and, and ethnicities and, and, and national origin. I think one of the things that I find insane about the Battle of Britain specifically is the, the absolute lack of, of knowledge of all of the uh, foreign nationals that flew in Spitfires and Hurricanes, especially mm. um, Polish um, men who came over here did, you know, did an amazing job and a lot of them ultimately, you know, died defending Britain and the, and the allies. And unfortunately after the war, they were just shipped home, mm. which is, it's sad, it's wrong and it's unfair. And absolutely. I think we need to be, you know, looking away from not looking away from, but it's nice to shed some light on the lesser knowns. Um, not just, you know, the Norman, we've got the, you know, the, the Normandy breakout and the D days and, you know, the atomic bombs and Dunkirk and Sicily mm. and all these incredibly important and powerful moments in history, but the individuals and, and I was going to mention about Anne Frank when you mentioned her uh, previously, I find it really, really difficult to do anything to do with Anne Frank. Um, because as you rightly said in, in her diary, it's so real, it's so visceral and it's so normal mm. and it, and it really puts a human, you know, child's face to this uh, horrendous conflict. And uh, yeah, we need to do better as a, a generation, as a society to, to shed the light on these people. I also think because sort of after, after the war, there was kind of this perception built up um, of um, Britishness and uh, mm. oh, we, we stuck it to Jerry and all that kind of stuff. And, and actually the, the, the full history has been erased. And I think that's why we now have this massive problem with uh, nationalism, because people look back at the time of Churchill and the time of, of, of white Britain, in quotation marks, or white male Britain, um, or wasn't it better back then? But actually, it, it, it was as diverse then as it is now. Um, but we don't hear about that. And people like hark back to this age of white male britain when we've been given this false narrative from mm. from world war Two that they, they keep calm and carry on and all that kind of stuff um which i actually learned the other day 
that poster was scrapped in World War Two. It was never actually released, so that's a lie. Really? Yeah. Um, wow. I also learned that... Um, so during the, the Blitz at the beginning of the war, so when, when, the, when the Blitz started, um, uh, Winston Churchill's government um, decided uh, that they were going to lock up all of the um, tube stations so no one could go down them. And the only reason they opened them up again is because there was a bit of a mob rule going on and people were like crowded at Liverpool Street Station and they were so terrified because their houses and that were being bombed, they forced the gates down and then all of a sudden the, the, the Prime Minister said, well, oh yes, we'll let them down but we'll, we'll ticket them and we'll make them pay. So this whole blitz spirit thing is a whole fabrication. Um, which people need to know about, I think. Um, we know my political stance. It's probably, yeah, I was very pleased when I... Not pleased for the people there, but I was pleased that I can expose these um, fabrications. So anyway, I'll get off my soapbox now. Um, so have you got any other women to talk to me about, inspirational women, before we uh, crack on with chatting about the magazine? Yeah, I mean, I, I can keep going. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got yeah. another one. Shock. It's, uh, it's a little bit older, um, but a little bit more modern. Um, Margaret Beaufort mm. is, is my second choice, I guess. Um, another insanely um, busy life, let's say. Let's, um, she was born in 1443, um, so right in the... Not in the middle of the Wars of the Roses, but we're kind of getting to the point where it's going to start to kick off. Um, She was born with some level of royal blood in her veins. Um, She was... It gets very messy, obviously, with the Wars of the Roses, as as people know. And uh, she comes from the illegitimate line through John of Gaunt, so the father of um, Henry IV, um, through the Lancastrians, uh, and his... I don't want to use the word mistress because they did eventually get married, but mistress, I guess, at this time, uh, Catherine Swinford. Um, they, she was eventually, um, they were kind of brought into the, the family. They weren't considered illegitimate, but they were never, ever allowed to um, uh, inherit the throne or anything like that. Um, so Margaret um, spent much of her life as a political tool, as most women, unfortunately, did. Mm. Um, but she was kind of determined to make a little bit more of herself. Um, she was married at the age of like 12, um, which was not the most out of the, out of the ordinary kind of thing to do. Um, most um, of the higher ups were betrothed as children. Uh, the Empress Matilda to bring her up again. Um, she was betrothed to um, the Holy Roman Empire, Holy Roman Hem- Emperor, bloody hell, uh, Henry at the age of like eight. And they got married at 12. But yeah, Margaret was married to uh, Edmund Tudor um, at the age of just 12. I like that um, name, Edmund. We need to bring that it's back. It's nice, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, I like Edmund. Yeah. Um, it's very Anglo-Saxon. I like Edmund. If I get another pet, I'll call it Edmund. <laughs> Quality name. <laughs> um, but Edmund Tudor was the son of Owen Tudor, who is a really important guy on his own. Uh, he was the second husband to Catherine of Valois, who was the previous wife of Henry V. Um, their father, 
the children of the Tudors and Catherine would be kind of half-siblings of uh, Henry VI, who is a moron. Uh, anyway, <laughs> Margaret. I don't like Henry VI. He's on my list of people I don't like with Henry VIII, uh, William the Conqueror, and, yeah, Henry VI. And John. So negative, Christopher. I am. That's what you get. That's what you get. Uh, I thought you knew this by now. <laughs> um, yes, so, yeah, she's married to uh, Edmund, and she gets pregnant straight away. And she has a child at the age of 12, which is horrendous. Mm. Physically, mentally, I assume, to, uh, to, to a, a 12-year-old, 13-year-old girl to first conceive a child, carry a child, then give birth to a child in the, you know, in the 1450s. Sanitation wasn't there. Medical understanding wasn't there. And she somehow survived. Um, you know, luckily she, she gave birth to a healthy boy. Shock, he was called Henry. Um, <laughs> named after the king, Henry VI. Um, and he would eventually become Henry VII, but we'll get on to that. Um, so she, unfortunately, was never able or never wanted to ever have another child ever again. Uh, Henry was well, her I'm only not child. Surprised if she was yeah. young, she probably went through trauma, didn't she? Yeah. Obviously, we have no real understanding of how it affected her, but you know, assume mm. you're a twelve-year-old girl and that happens. I, I, yeah. Um, but literally, as things were just starting to be okay, you know, she was a young, young mother, a, a landowner in a kind of a, you know, through her husband. Her Edmund died of the plague. Um, the good old plague that was back, um, and she was um, widowed at thirteen um, with this Jesus. with this baby boy, um, and instantly the the wars of the roses, like I said at this point, are really starting to kick off between the houses of Lancaster um, and York, and by the fourteen sixties, um, it had all gone wrong for her. Lancastrian cousin, uh, Henry VI. He'd been absolutely battered at the Battle of Towton, um, which is considered the bloodiest battle in English history. I don't know how many people are supposed to die because if you read one article, it's 2,000, another one, it's 60,000. So it, it's, it's bad. Um, but yeah, Henry VI is deposed. He's kicked off back to France. And therefore, as a Lancastrian, her and her son, Henry, are you know prime targets for... Um, either execution, imprisonment, or, you know, at the very least being watched. Um, Henry is uh, given over, essentially, to her to his uncle, Jasper Tudor, another great name. Jasper and Edmund, quality names. Um, they'd, they'd have to go to a nice school, wouldn't they? They're definitely Eton boys or Harrow boys. Um, <laughs> or pets. <laughs> yeah, or pets, yeah. Jasper's a definite dog name. Yeah, 100%. Definitely. Um, yeah, she remarries. Um, she marries Henry Stafford, um, who was a friend of the new king, Edward IV, who was um, from the House of York. Um, she, one thing that's really important and really cool about Margaret is even at the age of like 12 and 13, she was making these political decisions on her own. Um, she decided to marry um, Henry Stafford at the age of like 15 or 16 or something. And she was like, no, I, I want to marry this dude. He's the one that's going to give me the best opportunities to keep me the safest politically and things like that. And uh, yeah, it was all going well. And then it stopped going all well again. Um, 
but you know she 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 does all right in the end um but yeah it, it keeps flim flamming between edward the fourth is king and then henry the sixth is brought back and you know kings are deposed people are killed she loses pretty much every male relative in her family um henry's guardianship changes hands several times he's still only a you know a, a young lad at this point um he's eventually shipped off to Brittany um to be kind of well he's in exile essentially um and at this point you know margaret's pretty much on thin ice she's She's been the friends of the Lancastrians. She's been friends of the Yorkists. The Lancastrians are back now and it's still on rocky ground. And then Henry VI is deposed again and eventually murdered or dies suspiciously, if you're that way inclined. Murdered. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, there's more rebellions and she's trying to, like, you know, politically, she's doing this amazing balancing act of keeping all these plates spinning between her you know between her kinfolk like all these people are related um for better or for worse all of these are cousins and you know second cousin third cousins they're all they're all at each other's throats mm. um eventually she marries for a third time again pretty much doing the work herself picking the picking the lucky chap and it was um this time it was thomas lord stanley who was one of the um key landowners in England. But one, one thing that Stanley was, was good at, in a way, was not picking a side. Um, and it was at the Battle of, uh, the Battle of Bosworth Field in uh, 1485, um, obviously between her son, who had come back, Henry, the, or Henry Tudor at this point, um, meeting the white boar in the most Game of Thronesy thing ever, Richard III. Um, and it's Lord Stanley's men that kind of tur uh, um change the kind of course of history mm. um, coming in on the side of the the Lancastrians if you can even call them Lancastrians at this point because they are they are inheriting this claim to the throne through and this is obviously not my opinion but through an illegitimate woman who gets their rights through another woman through it's it's like at the point it, it, how Henry the seventh got to the throne is insane anyway there's literally no other Lancastrians left so there he is um, so she's kind of relieved at this point. She's done, she spent her entire life fighting to survive, really, and to protect her son. Kind of her one, not her one redeeming feature, she has loads of them, but her main redeeming feature for me and is the fact that she was probably one of the best mums ever. I think we all can appreciate our mums, especially with it being Mother's Day recently. Like, I think Margaret Beaufort is a absolute prime example of, of mother's love she did everything she's she could a top to protect mom. henry yeah i would send her a mother's day card if if she would get she it. was your mother <laughs> and if she was my mum because it'd be weird if not because margaret both not my mum sorry my mum i did send you a card you have not got it yet but hey ho good old royal mail anyway do you, do you want to shout your mother out just to make up for i will her? do my mum is great my mum is great i haven't seen her in 18 months which is quite shit um that's covid related not not, she's not on like a distant island or anything. She lives in Gloucester. Um, but yeah, I would very much like to see my mum. That would be very nice. <laughs> um, but yeah, Margaret Beaufort. She Her son... Sorry, I becomes... thought you'd finished. No, no, no go right. on, go on. Sorry, I'm really going on about her, aren't I? No, so, no, no, absolutely. Um, we like... That's what this platform um, is for. <laughs> her, um, her son Henry becomes king, marries his cousin, shock, um, Elizabeth of York who was the um, niece of Richard III, 
basically ties a nice bow on the Middle Ages. And this is where I usually tip my hat and duck out. Mm. Um, I dip my toe in a little bit, but yeah. To she, the Tudors, she's this is where I take yeah. over. <laughs> yeah, you, you know my feelings on these guys. I'm not the biggest fans. But yeah. I like Henry VII. He's kind of the last medieval king. Um, he's, he kind of rewards her kind of lifelong service, really. Um, he grants her the, t- the title of Femme Sol, um, or Femme Sole. I don't know if it's French or Latin at this point. Um, but that basically gives her... It gave her considerable control over her own properties, finances, or estates. Um, and she basically spent the last of her last years of her life um, before dying in 1509 as the queen. Um, in a way, she's kind of the uncrowned queen, one of the many uncrowned queens of England that would have done a wonderful job probably themselves um, if, you know... The stupid the men were not holding better. them back. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, she way. was... She was instrumental in the marriage of Catherine of Aragon to Arthur Tudor, mm-hmm. who obviously died in the eighth break from Rome, yada yada. Um, but yeah, she's she was known throughout her life for her piety. She was incredibly religious. She founded um, chapels and churches with um, her third husband, Lord Stanley, who was probably they may not have loved each other in the conventional sense, but they were both older. They both. Companions. Probably really, yeah, absolutely. And I really implore people to look into those two, especially in Margaret in general, but her, her later years with, with Lord Stanley and with when Henry's king, she, she kind of just gets to chill out, mm. but she doesn't and she just powers on through. She's there, you know, granting charters and, you know, really, really being, the you know, an insanely important and, and influential woman. Mm. She's wicked. Again, somebody I don't know, huge amounts about so it's a good job that you're here really um whilst um i was doing a tiny bit of research while you were telling our listeners about um margaret so um rosie your um fine lady nor who i can't say either so i'm gonna call her nora um she was executed in dachau concentration camp which i've actually been to so that's really interesting um, yeah, so that's, that's, it's interesting to know actually where she sort of perished, which is, it's, it's a very sad place to be, a very, very odd place to be. But yeah, that's, um, she's definitely someone that I'm going to look up more for sure. Yeah, I think her statue is in Bloomsbury in London as well. I think is it? Okay. That's I'm, where she lived. In London, I'm anyway. Scribbling down all these notes. I've got a call for spy, <laughs> film to watch, exclamation mark, and Bloomsbury. <laughs> so <laughs> wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Um, is there anyone else you want to talk to us about, Rosie? Before we go on to the magazine. Um, I'll do a quick one. Yeah. Go um, for it. so I wrote a blog post about this. Um, a guest blog post on the historian mum blog um but it's about eleanor ormerod mm-hmm. um basically she was a female scientist that studied entomology i don't know if that's how you say yeah, that, that is, um, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so obviously like that's the study of insects um crops um domestic animals um and she was kind of one of the first serious um entomologists at the time um which was in the 
mid 1800s um, to really focus on agriculture. Um, she was really interested in like looking at um, pests that were helpful to um, crops and pests that weren't helpful to crops and how she could balance this out so that the crops would be better. Um, she was educated at home. So the reason I kind of know about her is where I grew up um, in Gloucestershire. Um, there's like this big house and she grew up there um, and she was actually homeschooled um, but she got interested in entomology just from like looking around the garden basically mm. and picking up insects and just going oh that's interesting yeah. um, rather than actually being taught her field um, but she actually went on to have be the first woman to be honoured with a fellowship at the Royal meteorological society um in 1878 um and she was also the first woman to receive an honorary doctorate from the university of edinburgh in 1900 um for her work because she worked with like the um i'm trying to remember what they were called now i think it's like the like agricultural society mm. of britain she worked with them producing like annual reports and going around farms and creating like a network of farmers um to improve british farming because obviously you know it's only in recent years that farming's really reached its peak levels you know before the 1800s it was mostly them out on their own mm. whereas she was working to make everyone a bit more connected and try and make the crops better by controlling the pests um but obviously considering she was homeschooled um, she achieved a lot. She had like loads of annual reports and like um, articles published, um, as well as the honorary degree. Um, just really interesting woman. Um, That's amazing. I can imagine that that just changed the whole landscape of farming completely. Um, if she's so, it's kind of a um, industrial process now, isn't it? Um, Where it's very it's very efficient when we know exactly what conditions things need to grow under, what pests are good, what are bad. So so I guess that all links back to her. Yeah, well, she was, like, obviously quite basic. Like, she'd go through with nets and, like, mm. scoop up the bugs and stuff. Um, and it was, I think it was about 20 years until, from her death, until, um, like, pesticide was, in, like, invented. Yeah. So she was using like this really basic stuff called Paris green, which actually had arsenic in, which, you know, <laughs> isn't great now. They, then Victorians she... loved arsenic, didn't they? they just put it yeah. In <laughs> yeah. Like she didn't obviously know that arsenic was bad, but that was the kind of basic stuff that they were using almost like a powder type thing to yeah. help like control the pest. So she was like really basic, but obviously the work that she started then led on to just the advancement of everything mm. I know obviously like the introduction of like tractors and stuff did help but I think her work did start off like actually observing the land as yeah. well it's a collective effort though isn't it because without her then it probably wouldn't have led on to other things like pesticides and and then in turn like people probably would have gone hungry because you were very much reliant on weather and one man and his field do you know what I mean it's um yeah definitely it's really interesting that she again someone that we've not heard of and why have we not heard mm. of her 
Yeah, um, and she was never paid for her work. Mm, she did it typical. all, like, voluntary, which mm. I think is just crazy. Like, I know she came from a wealthy background, but as a woman, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get all the money. <laughs> no, no, because it normally either goes to your husband or your brother's cousins, if they're male. So, mm. um, really interesting. Chris, have you got anything to add on that? Yeah, I mean, it's just, there are so many occasions and, and I'm not going to pretend that I know pretty much anything about any of the people that you've you've shared shared with as um, there's so many, you know, women and people that just get kind of ignored or, or glossed over, um, you know, like um, Marie Curie is another one, obviously a very, very, very well-known woman who really should be more well-known in a way. Um, she was still living in a man's world and she was still kind of played second fiddle to her husband a lot of the time. And it's only, you know, only through talking about it and sharing it, do we, do we ever learn these things? And it's, it's, it's nice to be, to teach and be taught. It's, it's really nice. Mm. I mean, what's interesting, I think, with, with the four people that you've both brought to the table is they're from completely different time periods. Um, mm. And why is the struggle still very much real? <laughs> uh, even sort of you bring it to, to modern day, we've all seen the events of of last week, um, which has left Britain in a bit of turmoil. Um, but I'm glad that it's being recognised. Um, yeah. And I'm glad that it's been highlighted. But I hope that it's not just a fad. Like I, I kind of felt like the Black Lives Matters um, campaign was was kind of on trend, which is a horrible thing to say, but it was, um, it it's an important struggle that still continues. So we st we've still got to continue to sort of stand in solidarity with, with, with women and of, of, of people of, of colour and all that kind of stuff. So that's my little piece on the... On the subject um do you know i've actually lost some followers from um expressing my opinions about um women recently which is God. terrible um get rid of them and it it proves that we've got a lot to do um yeah. if people are um just being bigots so anyway if you're like that then please do not follow me <laughs> anyway you are not welcome here um right i'll get off my soapbox again right guys talk to me about the history uh, the historians magazine um i'll go first yes, why not yes, um, yes. you are the creator <laughs> go. yeah so basically i wanted to create a magazine just to bring like the history community of instagram together because i think like, there's so many people in the community and I just thought, like, it'd be so nice to put everyone, like, in one thing. <laughs> like, mm. in, like, read everyone's, like, a little bit of people's stuff um, and kind of, you know, meet new people and be able to follow new people from connecting through the magazine. Um, and obviously, I just like the design stuff as well. Um, and I just thought it would be a nice idea to get through the lockdown and be a bit more sociable and just create something that's people are going to enjoy basically yeah it's a great way of um 
sort of merging everyone's interests into one like collaborative place. Um, and obviously you're very good at design. You can tell that when you flick through um, the magazine, which makes it um, appealing for a lot of people. Because for, for me, a lot of, lot of history prior to sort of starting the podcast and, and Instagram and social media and stuff, it could be quite stuffy um, and quite unattractive to read. Um, but I think with, with magazines such as such as yours, um, it would definitely rival the mainstream stuff. It's really good. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, <laughs> you are welcome. But I wanted to design it to be a bit more modern as well. I just, mm. I hate seeing things that are, badly designed and stuff like like I work in marketing so I think I'm very like you know I just notice these things mm. yeah and again the thing is if you um you've got a keen eye for it then that will show I think when you 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 get that out there and um I mean you've got one out now haven't you that was a sort of around Christmas time that came out yeah, so the first edition, like, I kind of just did it all by myself. Like, I just put the call out, edited the articles, like, you know, like, sub-edited them for, like, mm. any spelling mistakes, and then just put them into the magazine, um, which was a lot more work than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> it's, um, a, it's a hefty <laughs> magazine as well, but it's not little. It's quite, um, it's got a lot of, like, great content in there. But, yeah, I can imagine on your own, that was hard going. Yeah, definitely. Like, I just got a lot more response than I thought I was going to get. And mm. I just didn't really anticipate that. So it was a lot, it was a lot to do. Yeah. So obviously, this time, I kind of created a team, like put together a team, so that I don't have to do everything, because otherwise, it would just take forever to make another edition. Yeah, exactly. I, I find when these things become a bit more of a chore, then you kind of go off them a little bit. Well, I do anyway. Um, like creating them the kind of the fun goes out of it like the initial concept sort of goes because it becomes hard work um whereas it should be fun I think yeah definitely and I think also like when I did the first edition I kind of just said yes to everyone's ideas and I because I just do not want to be mean and say no and like <laughs> I didn't want to have to think about what was going in whereas mm. this time like I got a team of like so there's like four editorial assistants and we had like a Zoom call and we went through everything and we discussed like what would actually fit with the theme and like that kind of thing rather than just going, oh yeah, that sounds interesting, let's put it in when really not every edition is going to take every idea that gets submitted. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess some of the ideas you can kind of park until you get a um, a sort of a, a, a theme, not a theme, that's the wrong but like a, a flowing concept of that magazine rather than the, the edition that you're working on. Um, does that make sense? It makes sense in my head. Um. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, like some people's articles, ideas were good, just not for now. Mm, absolutely. So where, like, what, what are some of the articles that obviously you don't have to go through them all? I would be here all day. But um, <laughs> yeah, like what, what kind of, things are, are, are people submitting or are they writing about or are you accepting? Um, so obviously like this edition's theme is Forgotten Women of History mm. um, and obviously like we've got so many different like time periods and like different people um, it's like really interesting so we've got like 
we had quite a few Tudor ones because obviously Tudors are just like the most popular thing ever. Mm, um, yeah. Everyone loves the Tudors. Apart from <laughs> um, Chris. Apart from Chris. Yeah. And we got some like American history, which I don't think we had any of that in the first edition, which mm. is quite nice for like kind of like revolutionary type American history. Amazing. Um, we've got we've got some more modern ones. So I think we have one about um, the first black woman working in the BBC. Um, we've got like a little bit of trans history as well. Um, literally just just so much different content like obviously a few things like not crossover but there's a few medieval ones there's a few Tudor ones but we have got like a wide range between modern and old that's good because it will appeal to everyone there because everyone's kind of got their favorite time periods um I know I have um and it's something you're drawn towards more so if you've got that 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 sort of overriding theme of forgotten women of history and then different periods of time it's going to then lead so for example i love the victorians but it's probably going to lead me on to an article about the tudors that maybe i wouldn't have read before so you're you're actually opening up history or a period of history to, to different people um that wouldn't necessarily read that so i think it's great yeah, I think it's nice to, like, have the range, like, definitely, like, like you said, like, people won't choose to read it, like, if it was just on its own, but mm. together, it's, like, makes it just more interesting. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, Chris, what's your role in the the magazine? Um, so my role is the uh, features coordinator, so um, my job is to... Um, essentially come up with ideas for overall themes for the features and the kind of the big articles in the magazine um i get kind of approval from from rosie and the editors and then i go out searching for for articles really um it was a bit of a we kind of came to the 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 theme joint um uh, for this first one um, about kind of the, the idea of, of forgotten women of history and it, it kind of just fell nicely with International Women's Day and International Women's Month in the States and we both kind of, me and Rosie both kind of went but what about women and it just kind of happened um, which was really nice and uh, like Rosie said about just I, I was absolutely blown away with the amount of things I was sent and the amount of people that wanted to get involved um, and it was really hard saying no to people I've never really had to say no in in a uh, kind of editorial writing kind of way before, and it was it was really really horrible actually. Um, we <laughs> you'll get we a backbone, some, I'm sure. I'm sure I'll find one somewhere. <laughs> but um, I I just started out by uh, writing in the first edition, um, and I enjoyed doing it. Um, obviously, we've we've already mentioned that Rosie did a fantastic job on the actual magazine itself. Um, it's one of the pieces of work that people ask me about the most, like outside of Instagram and things like, oh, I, I read that article you wrote for that magazine. That's really cool. Um, it's one of the ones that gets brought up on um, the most, um, which is cool. Um, and then, yeah, as soon as I saw that Rosie was looking for people to give her a hand, I was like, yeah, I've got to, uh, I've got to throw my hat in the ring here. So I was going to say, who approached who? <laughs> 
I can't remember if I ever approached you before you kind of put the post out, because uh, I was going to do, um, if, if I didn't already. But yeah, Rosie put the post out looking for um, people to help, and I was straight straight in the in the in the dms for that one big time <laughs> did you have a lot of people to choose from rosie um yeah like an insane amount there was oh. so many it took me so long um to go through it all because i wanted to make sure i read everyone's applications and or like what they sent me of their work and stuff so like it just took me a while and everyone was kind of going for the same roles a lot of people were interested in the kind of um, like sub editor one where you like proofread the articles and stuff so it was just mm. like impossible trying to sort through it all yeah absolutely well it just I, I i kind of find that the 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 instagram or the social media history community like they're really nice people um i've never had anyone sort of put me down or or if they need to correct me on on something that i've said they'll do it in a nice way do you know what i mean it's not like um a a nasty place to be which is social media kind of gets a bit of a bad rap um but obviously it's 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 worked for me and it's it's obviously working for you in the magazine as well yeah definitely like everyone that i've spoken to through the magazine just been so nice which is why it's even worse to like say no (laughs) (laughs) it is hard isn't it it is hard but um it's great that there's been so much interest and you can see why um the the content and the quality is is great and i very much wouldn't um put it past you guys to be in a in a in a position to get published at some point um because it is it is of that high quality um so yes if you did i would definitely subscribe (laughs) you got your first customer there there we go sorted (laughs) um is there anything else about the magazine that you kind of want to throw out there this is kind of your forum at the moment so um i guess like this time I'm considering getting it printed. If people would be interested in buying it, then let me know. Mm. Um, I think it's always nice to do a test of getting it printed and see how that goes. Yeah, um, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I mean, if anyone is interested in, in, in the, the Historian's Magazine, then please message me, Chris or Rosie. I can always pass on. Um, messages to these guys but yeah I mean I would definitely be interested and I'm sure a lot of other people would as well um getting something nice for your letterbox rather than a bill um would be Mm. amazing so yeah I mean I can put a post out for you no problems and we can see um sort of where that takes us and then you can make a decision based on that I guess yeah, um, and this edition, we have like a graphic designer doing some illustrations for it as well. Oh, so amazing. it's going to look even better than last time. Oh, um, I'm excited to see it. I'm excited. Yeah, I've got like some of the like first idea designs and they're really good. So mm. I'm excited for so, everyone to see it. Yeah, so do, have you, uh, do you know when it's going to come out or have you, just not, have you not put a time limit on it? You want to kind of want to get it right or...? Is there a um, deadline? So we have our deadlines like in the uh, magazine team, but mm. um, 
and I think it's going to be probably mid-April um, just because obviously getting so I think the deadline for the articles is this week to be sent back to mm. us and then obviously like a few weeks just to like put it together and edit the articles and stuff so it'll probably be mid-April um, maybe like the 15th or 16th something like that mm-hmm. that's amazing though I think it is really important not to for, for me anyway putting deadlines on things like terrifies me that's why i don't have a um specific date that podcasts come out because as soon as i did that i'd be like no can't do it can't do it um so i'll like release three episodes in like one day and then nothing for like a week (laughs) um but that's just how my mind works but yeah it's really exciting especially because it's only the second um edition and this is kind of like the first one i guess that you've had a team to to sort of manage as well so that's exciting yeah, I think it's definitely already been easier this time just mm. because like it just ha- everything just happens quicker like even just getting Chris to do the features and do the call out for it and arrange all that and now they're in the inbox. So I'm like, "Oh, I don't have to chase anyone up. It's mm. just so good." Like I just it's so much easier. Yeah, definitely. Teamwork makes the dream work as they say for that cheesy cheesy saying. <laughs> um it's I'm just, I'm so excited, guys. It'll be absolutely amazing. And obviously, when it is out, I'll give you a shout out on here um, and post everything. Um, I'm a bit of a social media <laughs> queen, so I'll, um, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll try and put it out. Hopefully, I wouldn't have lost all my followers by then. Um, please, <laughs> please stay with me, guys. Unless you're racist or sexist, then you can go because um, you're not welcome. But, um, yeah, I mean, Chris, have you got anything to add? Yeah, I would like just to issue a little bit of an apology um, to the people that have been writing the features. I told you that the deadline was today. Uh, The deadline was not today, but thank you very much for sending them early. I just really, really didn't want to upset Rosie if they didn't come in on time. So I gave them less of a time than I had, just in case. Um, I do that. Thank you very much for sending me them. Um, I, I felt a little bit cheeky doing it, but now I guess I've, I, we've got them all. It's all good. Um, but yeah, I it's just it's been really really good fun. It's been hard work. Uh, you know, I've not had to chase anyone yet. I'm assuming in future episode, uh, future <laughs> issues that might not be the case. But um, everyone that I've spoke to about it, and you know, in general in social media, like we've been saying, it's the the community is weirdly nice um it's it's, it's really quite really unsettling cool. at first isn't it yeah like, why are you being um, nice to me i think we all kind of ended up here because of lockdown and things like that i know i certainly did mm. um as something just kind of kill a bit of time um and it's become like a second job yeah. which most people will be like well why would you want to do that and it's like because it's really good fun Mm. um and and the magazine has been uh it's been really really fun um and you really should people should genuinely be excited to see what is in it i've purposely not mentioned what the the featured articles are about um because i want you to read it um and you will enjoy it um because the people that have written them um i can absolutely guarantee you are wonderful historians in their own right and you will not be disappointed with what they've done Amazing. So, Rosie, is it quite a diverse team, then? Is it a team from kind of all over the country? Um, yes, I think so. <laughs> um, 
I mean, I'm not 100% sure, but I think we're all from different like backgrounds and different places mm. and um yeah. Yeah, this is the first time that you two have ever spoken, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How exciting. Very. I was going to say and and silence. <laughs> 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 I feel like, you know, one of the mediators that when people have fallen out, you have to like be like, and now she said this and he said that. Um, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, so mid-April, it will be out, hopefully. But yeah, we'll, we'll, keep you all, we'll keep you all posted. And again, thanks for coming on and sort of sharing your, um, your platform with us. It's, it's really exciting. And I know that the, the people that listen to this will be really excited um, to learn about the, the women of history, the forgotten women of history. Um, I'm definitely going to do a bit more research on the, um, uh, the lady that you spoke to me about earlier. Um, and um, Chris, I'm sure you'll talk to me about um, the two ladies again, because you love them. So much. Whether you like it or not. Whether I like it or not, you're just chatting <laughs> chat my ear about them. But no, it's really interesting. Um, so thanks, guys, for coming on. And um, yeah, we'll chat soon. Thank you for having me. You are welcome. Yes, thank you, as always.